Well, Dwayne, thank you for those kind words. I, I can't wait to listen to myself. <laughs> uh, greetings to you from my wife, Bernice, and from our church in Adelaide. Uh, we, we pastor uh, a medium-sized church in one of the suburbs of Adelaide. We might be a medium-sized church, but we have a big God and a big vision. There is no limit to what you can achieve in life. There is no limit to what you can achieve in life. Throw away all your small ambitions and uh, just do what God's called you to do. Uh, some of the things that uh, we do is my wife and I run a, a church planting program in Poland, the most unreached nation on the planet. You'd never believe that. But hidden behind old-fashioned, old-style Catholicism is a nation of 38 million people with less than uh, 400 churches. It, it, it is absolutely staggering. But together we can make a difference. And uh, over the last three or four years we've been able to fund the planting of five churches in Poland. And that's very exciting. And then uh, as a church we have a school in Bolivia. I mean, what can a medium-sized church do? whatever God wants you to do. And uh, we have 55 children that we educate and feed and uh, train and help. And uh, every one of them have given their lives to Jesus Christ and many of their families have become part of the Assemblies of God Church where the school is based. One incredible thing, just, just, just have a go and see what God can do. And then my wife and I uh, spend a lot of our time in training others and uh, providing resources. As a parent, uh, my wife and I have been blessed with three kids. They're all married, and we have ten grandchildren. Now, grandchildren are much more interesting than children. You know, you've got to smack... Oh, you don't smack you. You know, sort of being a parent has all sorts of challenges. But being a grandparent has all the blessings of being a parent without any responsibilities. And you can thoroughly, thoroughly spoil them. Uh, so when, when, that, you know, when we had kids, my wife and I became productive. But when our children became parents themselves, we became reproductive. Do you understand what I'm saying? And in ministry... God doesn't just want us to be productive, he wants us to be reproductive. So it's not a question of, you know, can I preach a good sermon? The question is, how many preachers am I training to preach good sermons? This is 2 Timothy 2, to teach others, to teach others, who in turn will teach others. And by that way, you can multiply your ministry. Uh, one of the things that I did a few, just a couple of years ago is I started to remember some of the miracles that my wife and I have seen in our ministry. And uh, we've been pastoring for uh, 38 years. And uh, over, those, over that time, we've seen some terrific things happen. And so I thought I'd put together a little book called Can God? God Can. And uh, it, it's just a really... It, I now have to tell you something that, that's, that's a bit embarrassing. I wrote this for the bathroom. I, I, I put it in little 
in, so obviously you read in the bathroom. Okay, so, so there are little chapters of about 500 words, sort of just on a little visit, you pay to the little room, and you can, you can read a miracle. Uh, th- there's only one thing wrong. If you read the first chapter, you won't be able to put it down because when you hear of what God has done, faith grows. And so there are stories of miracles. There's a story of a miracle that you saw, Lynn, when a guy called Steve Simpson got healed on a Saturday night in Toowoomba. This young man who married um, Debbie Lorenz uh, had damaged his spine in a car accident. And he was actually going through a very large legal uh, process of claiming a huge amount of money because of a spinal injury. And I remember on a Saturday night with an evangelist at Spring Street called Ezekiel Chung, I think his name was. And Steve came out for prayer for his back. And the pastor held his hands towards him and Steve started walking backwards like he was being propelled by something and fell over backwards. He immediately got up holding his back, said, my back, my back, my back. And I thought, here is a law case. You know, we are about to be severely sued. You know, nobody caught it. He's gone down. And he starts running up and down the aisle saying, my back, my back. He's healed my back. Do you remember that night? And on Monday morning, he went to his lawyer and said, would you cancel my legal claim? Because God has healed me. And he has never suffered from back discomfort since. Actually, he passes a church, I think, in Canberra. So those are the sort of stories. They're stories about how we uh, relocated the Bible college from Katoomba to Chester Hill. Incredible mi- miracle. Stories about the provision of funds and uh, how we came to be planting churches in Poland and the story of Bolivia that revolves around a stunning miracle uh, of a man's healing. So uh, that little book, $5, will bless you, help you, and feed my grandkids. So um, <laughs> don't, don't, you know, buy one for your mother on Mother's Day. Um, I want to talk to you today about hope. Hope is one of the most powerful emotions, one of the most powerful attitudes that you can have in life. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that three things remain, faith, hope, and love. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that hope is a tree of life. To live without hope is actually to live in hell. When people lose hope in their marriage, they feel trapped. If they lose hope in their career, their job, their education, they see that they become hopeless and they are filled with despondency and despair. But if you can lift your hopes, if you can lift your eyes, if you can lift your vision... If you can see beyond where you now see and fill your heart and your mind with hope, everything becomes possible. You have to believe that your future is better than your past. You've got to believe that your best days are yet to come. You have to believe, Pastor, that you haven't preached your best sermons yet. You're only just warming up. Everybody point at him and say, you haven't preached your best yet, Pastor. Your future, your future is better than your past. If you could see what God has in store for you, you would be absolutely amazed. 
And you're saying, oh, Jeremy, you're just saying words. I'm speaking Ephesians 3.19, that the God we serve is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask or think. That's the God we serve. So face the future with confidence. Hey, your future's better than your past. You haven't... Is this your brother? (laughs) This is... Your cousin. Oh, it's close. (laughs) Hello, cousin. God's got an incredible plan for your life. To find that plan is success. You might have ambitions educationally. You might have ambitions to be a sports star. You might have ambitions to make a million dollars. All those things are good. But to find the will of God and to do it, that is success. So let me talk to you about hope. Many times... We get caught up here. And we get in such a difficulty here that all we can see are our problems and our circumstances. But I want to tell you today, you may be here, but God is actively working there to meet your needs here. God's working over the horizon, out of sight, out of your perspective, to meet your need here. Now let me illustrate this from a few verses and a few incidents in the Bible. There was a man called Jehoshaphat. He was the king. He was the, the, the king that sent the praisers and worshippers and singers out into the, to lead the battle. You've heard of the name Jehoshaphat. I will preach better if you sort of smile and, and agree and nod and, and it'll be better for us all. So Jehoshaphat decides to attack, I think it was... Um, Uh, the Moabites. It was another nation. And to do that, he made an alliance with the king of Egypt and and, uh, the king of Israel. You have to guard your friends very carefully. If you're going to form an alliance, make sure you form an alliance with somebody that also believes in God. But Jehoshaphat made this ungodly alliance and the three kings sat down and they decided that they would attack Moab, not front on, but they would circle them around and attack them from the rear. To do that, they had to travel through the desert for seven days. Have you ever heard the statement that an army marches on its stomach? Have you ever heard the... I'll only tell you something, it's not true. Food is not the issue. Water is the issue. And when you've got combined armies of three nations marching through the desert, they have immense need for water. And so they actually meet in a valley seven days later where they expect a a stream to be flowing. But when they get there, the valley's dry. They are now in serious trouble. They've got no water for themselves and no water for their animals. And before the battle's ever fought, they may die in the desert. Jehoshaphat then says, if we've got a problem, we need a prophet. And they happen to have the prophet Elisha with them. And so... uh, Jehoshaphat said, Elisha, tell us what to do. And Elisha said, well, you shouldn't have aligned yourself with ungodly people. But God doesn't hold things against you. Would you please bring me a minstrel? Bring me someone who can play the harp or the guitar. And the Bible says that as the minstrel played, the Spirit of God came upon Elisha. Never think that the praise and worship at the beginning of church is just filling in time. When we are worshipping God, we're creating an opportunity not only for us to worship Him, but for God to speak to us. 
So while the minstrel plays, God speaks to Elisha. And this is what he says. In this desert, start digging ditches. I want you to fill the the desert floor, the valley floor, with irrigation channels. That's crazy. This is just dust and sand. No, he says, dig ditches. In the morning, as the sun rose, the valley was full of water. All the irrigation ditches are now full. The enemy see the reflection of the rising sun. They think the water is blood. They're confused. They sort of attack and, and there's a wonderful victory. You see, what happened was this. They were in the valley here, but it was raining on the mountains there. Out of sight, over the horizon, God was already meeting their needs and sending the water that they required. As they dug the ditches here, God was moving there. Now, I've got to talk to you about water and about Queensland stealing South Australia's water. Not you. It's those people out west, you know, those cotton-picking farmers. And, you know, um, this is the truth. When it rains in Queensland, Adelaide applauds. Because eventually, the water from Queensland will flow down into the Murray and the Darling systems, which we use continually. So it might be dry in Adelaide, but if it's raining in Queensland, it's okay. Oh, thank you for your response to this. (laughs) You, You see, you might be in the desert of your dryness. You may be in some great difficulty. You might be stuck here. But let me encourage you. God is moving there. It's raining on the mountains. It'll meet your need in the valley. You're here. You're stuck. You're in a difficult situation. You are here. But God's moving there to help you. Now, when it does rain here and you think we've had enough rain, you should say, Lord, send it to South Australia. Let me talk to you about Jonah. Jonah didn't have a difficulty, Jonah had severe disobedience. Because God said, I want you to go to Nineveh. He chose to take a ticket to Tarshish. The Bible actually says, see if you can guess the common word. He went down to Joppa, he went down to the sea, he went down to a boat, and he went down into the sides of... Down. Whenever you walk away from God, the road only leads in one direction. He goes into this mother of all storms. You know, it is so terrifying that that all the sailors are concerned they're going to drown. And they're all praying and they go looking for Jonah. And Jonah says, it's my fault. I'm the one. God's punishing me. Throw me overboard. Which they did. The Bible says that God had prepared a great fish. Now, let me ask you a question. When do you think God prepared the fish? Was it during the storm? Did God sort of snap his fingers and say, I need a whale, so many... This is what happened. For years, God had been preparing the whale for Jonah. It must have been a special sort of whale that could actually swallow him whole. It must have been a special kind of whale that his gastric juices wouldn't digest him. You have three days, you know, floating around in whatever. God prepared for his disobedience. Not when Jonah made the mistake, but for years, God had been planning to help Jonah. 
Jonah's in the storm, but God's already got it all under control. That's faith. Because sometimes we're in a difficulty like Jehoshaphat. Sometimes through our disobedience, we're like Jonah. But God's got it all under control. Our future is better than our past. He will bring us deliverance. Let me talk to you about the Ethiopian. This is Acts chapter 8. He was a treasurer. We do not know his name. He's a Gentile, but he's a God-fearer. And he travels 800 kilometers to uh, Jerusalem to worship. Now, let's suppose that the treasurer of Singapore visits Australia. He gets his own plane, flies to Canberra. How do you think our government would welcome the treasurer of Singapore? They'd probably roll out the red carpet. There might be a little, uh, you know, army band and, a, you know, a 21-gun salute because they would acknowledge that this man is a serious government official. But when the man comes to the temple, he's amazed to discover two things. Number one, he's a Gentile. I'm sorry, you can't come in. We've got an area for you, and it's on the other side of the car park. They then said, you have another serious problem because you are a eunuch. If you don't know what that means, he is, he is a desex neutered male. And in the, in the Leviticus, it says anybody that's been injured in that way can never approach the temple. So he is nationally and physically excluded from the temple. Imagine traveling 800 kilometers, you arrive at the place and you are told you're not welcome. How many of you have discovered that religion can sometimes close the door? Have you ever discovered that some churches will say, yeah, welcome, but we want you out of the car park, don't come too close. So here is this man, you know, with a heart for God and religion has closed the door. This man, he wasn't in difficulty like Jehoshaphat and he wasn't in um, disobedience like Jonah. He's incredibly disappointed with people. Anybody ever been there? So he leaves. He's now riding in his chariot back to Ethiopia. I'm going to draw you a little map. Here is Jerusalem. Uh, here this is left to front, back to right. Um, here's Jerusalem. There's Gaza. That's the road he's traveling on. To the north is a place called Samaria, where God has a preacher called Philip. They're having a citywide revival when God speaks to Philip and says, I want you to go, not to Jerusalem, but to Gaza. He leaves the revival for the desert. While he's, in the while he's walking to the desert, he meets the man from Ethiopia who happens to be reading the Bible from Isaiah 53. It's an incredible coincidence. But if you study the geography, the, the Ethiopian's in a chariot. Philip's got to walk. It takes, it, it takes Philip longer. He's got further to travel and he's got to walk. I've actually calculated that Philip had to leave Samaria two days before the man left Jerusalem for them to meet. In other words, before the man has been disappointed by religion, God has already seen his need and help is on the way. The man might be here in the valley in his disappointment, but over the horizon somebody's coming because the man might be seeking God, but more than that, God is seeking him. So wherever you are, wherever you are, in your difficulty, in your disobedience, in your disappointment, you might be stuck. 
But over the horizon, God is actively working on your behalf to help you. Isn't that incredible? What a great message that is. I want to use another illustration from the book of Genesis. And if you've got your Bible, you might like to turn to Genesis. And uh, let me see if I can find it. And this is uh, Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22 and verse 20. It's an interesting verse. What was the name of Abraham's wife? Sarah. Well done, sir. How old was she when she had her first and only child? 90. Abraham was 99. Sarah was 90. She, they struggled to have kids. But Abraham had a brother. And uh, the brother's name was Nahor. And I want you to look at uh, Genesis 22, verse 20. Sometime later, Abraham was told some news. Your brother's wife, Milcah, has got children. Now, this is of great interest to Abraham because he struggled to have one son. She's born sons, plural, to your brother Nahor. Well, this is really inspired. Look at the next one. Verse 21. Her first boy they called Uz. Everybody say, Uz. And the second one they called Buzz. <laughs> I wonder what baby name book they got those names out of. Us and Buzz. Have you ever seen that in the What a crazy name. So, you know, when you get married and have kids, you know, make sure the first one is called Us and then call the second one Buzz. But she didn't stop there because uh, then there was Camuel, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash. Boy, goodness me. You know, if Sarah found it difficult to have babies, this woman, her sister-in-law, is popping them out regularly. Jildaf, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Everybody say Bethuel. This is Nahor was the father, Bethuel was the son. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. Oh, in all this male-dominated family, she's finally... There's finally a girl, Rebecca. You need to understand that Abraham is a thousand kilometers away and he's greatly worried. He's worried about his son Isaac. He's worried about Isaac's future. He's worried about Isaac getting the right wife. And he's thinking, I don't want him to marry a girl out of the land. I don't want him to marry a Canaanite. You've got to understand that God is working on the royal line that will eventually produce Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. You, know, you understand all that? And Abraham wants the right wife for his son. And he hears that his nephew has a daughter, Rebecca. And he lies in bed at night and he thinks... I wonder, I wonder what Rebecca's like. I wonder where she is. I wonder if, you know, this sort of second cousin could, could actually be the one for Isaac. Because I don't want him to marry a woman of the land. And I don't want him to go back to our hometown because he'll lose the blessing. So I, I, I wonder, I wonder if, if it could happen that we could find Rebecca. So in chapter 24, you read about the story when some years later... When Isaac is now 40 and single, that Abraham calls his servant and says, I want you to swear an oath to me 
that you will travel to our hometown and find a wife for Isaac. And I don't want you to come back until you do that. He gave him large amounts of money. He gave him numerous gifts to give to the girl he would find. He gave him ten camels. Everybody say, ten camels. Ten camels and servants and soldiers. This is quite a caravan, you know, led by the head servants on a project to get a wife. You need to, uh, you need to understand that the distance was a thousand kilometers. And it was 64 years since Abraham had left. A thousand kilometers, 64 years. Has anybody lived in Bowen for 64 years? No, I didn't think so. You have, sir. Has Bowen changed over those 64 years? No. <laughs> you were supposed to say yes. Uh, maybe you haven't been to Brisbane for 64 years. You go down there, you can't recognize it. Is this true? In fact, if you go back, you know, ten, time changes things. And here is this man, this servant, sent on an impossible mission. Go a thousand kilometers to a town we left 64 years ago and find the girl that's going to marry Isaac. Big challenge. Now, I've never ridden a camel other than at uh, Tawanton, which was a most wonderful experience that I never want to repeat. So, a thousand kilometers on a ca- How long would a camel walk... Let's suppose it walked 40k a day. 40k's into 1,000k's is... It's a 20-day trip. 20 days on a camel at 40k's a day. When he arrives at the town, it's getting close to evening. And he prays an interesting prayer. You know, some of the great prayers of the Bible are really short. Like, help. Good prayer to pray. Because God is a help in time of trouble. And so he says, uh, okay, well, here we are at the well. I'm going to ask one of the girls from the town if she will give me a drink. And if she then says, while you drink, I'll water your camels, I'll know that's the one. So uh, out the women come out of the town and the servant speaks to one of them and he says to her, would you give us some water to drink? And she said, while you're drinking, I'll water your camels. She does that. And then the servant says, what is your name? And the hairs on the back of his head stand up. And she says, my name is Rebecca, daughter of Bethuel, granddaughter of Nahor. God has taken him a thousand kilometers. Sixty-four years have lapsed. And he takes him to the very woman who's related to Isaac. And he falls on his knees and he gives thanks to God. And he tells her the story of her great uncle, you know, her great uncle Abraham, whose son Isaac, miraculous birth, you know, the sacrifice that, that God intervened. And he gives her rings and nose rings and bracelets. And, and uh, you know, I'm here to look for, uh, for a wife for him and I reckon you're the one. She runs back home, takes the servants and the ten camels and the soldiers, and, the, and she tells the news. Now, uh, you've got to know two things. 
Number one, the family wasn't very keen on it. And, uh, and what was that? Okay. And um, where was I? Oh, the family weren't very keen. So uh, they said, why don't we wait a week? You know, let's think about this. And uh, the servant said, no, I've been 20 days on the journey. I want to go straight away. Why don't we ask her? And they said to Rebecca, are you willing? And she said three wonderful words, I am willing. You know, those, those three little words can affect your destiny. When the will of God appears to you, when the will of God presents itself to you, you can either resist it or you can say, I am willing. But the second thing is really important because it says she was beautiful. Thank God for that. I mean, what, what, what would it, you know, Rebecca, she was ugly. <laughs> oh, sorry, Isaac, you've been waiting 20 years to get married. You know, I'm, I'm sorry she couldn't look. Thank God she was beautiful. Just tell your wife, I reckon you're all right too. If it took 20 days to get there with men on 10 camels. The Bible actually tells us that uh, Rebecca got on her camels with her handmaidens and servants. So now we've got, you know, the servant with his 10 camels, and now you've got Rebecca with at least 10 camels and all her female attendants. How long do you reckon it would take to get back? <laughs> is, is, is your wife here today, sir? She's in Sunday school, so she didn't hear that. So, we all want five bucks not to tell her, okay? So, but I, I got to tell you the truth, and I'm only going to say this because my wife's not here. I, I'm with you. I, I reckon it would have taken longer. See, I, I can imagine the servant saying, um, we need to be on the road. And uh, the, the, her handmaiden says, she's in the shower. <laughs> she's just... She's just doing her hair. Uh, I reckon it probably took maybe 30 days or 40 days to get back. What's Isaac doing? He's waiting. He's counting the days. He's going up each evening to see if the camels are coming. And the 10 days, 20 days, 30 days, 40 days, and fear begins to grip his heart. And he starts to live in the what-ifs of life. What if the servant ran off with the money? What if bandits attacked them, killed the, killed the servant and the soldiers, and have taken the money? What if he couldn't find her? What if he found her, but she didn't want to come? What if... And when you are here in your difficulty or disobedience or disappointment, you get all these what-ifs. But I want to tell you, you might be here, but God is actively working there to bring the answer here. And even though Isaac cannot see him, see it, the camels are coming. I want you to tell the person next to you, the camels are coming. Oh, what are you talking about, Jeremy? It's raining on the mountains to fill the valley. 
The fish is coming to rescue Jonah in the storm. The prophet's coming from Samaria to speak to the Ethiopian. And here is Isaac looking for a bride. He can't see anything. But the camels are coming. Let me speak over your life. The camels are coming. God has answers to prayer that are on the way. You might be here, you can't see them, but the camels are coming. There's an answer to your employment problem. You might be in, a, uh, in unemployment, or you might be dissatisfied with your job, and you've prayed many times. Let me declare to you that the camels are coming. Let me speak over this church that the camels are coming. There are people in Bowen and the surrounding areas that don't know Jesus right now but Jesus is working on their lives we don't know them, we can't see them but the camels are coming and when you live in hopelessness when you feel trapped in your difficulty or disappointment or despair or your singleness, let me tell you that God's moving there to meet your need here and then came the day Verse 62 of chapter 24. Now Isaac had come from Beer Lehi Roy. He was living in the Negev. He went out in the field one evening to meditate. And as he looked up, he saw camels coming. He'd been counting the days. He'd thought all the what-ifs. But then he saw the dust And in the shimmering haze, he could see outlines of camels. And he knows the servant had left with how many? Ten camels. So he starts counting. One, two, three, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. And his heart begins to beat. And it says, he saw the camels coming. Rebecca looked up also and saw, don't you love love stories? No. Do you, are you married, sir? Yes. Good. Are you still passionately in love with your wife? Yes. Don't you love... I, I, I love love stories. If a movie's got a sad ending, I don't want to watch it. If I'm reading a novel and I think, this is not going to end good, I'll have a peek at the last page. Because I want the guy to get the girl and ride off into the sunset and have babies. That, that, that's, the, the Bible has got some fabulous love stories. The love story of Jacob and, you know, when he, when he lifted the veil to kiss his... It's the wrong one. And the Bible says that he served seven years and it seemed like a short time. So great was his love. What about Ruth and Boaz? What an incredible love story. What about the Song of Songs? Do you read that to your wife? You should read the Song of Songs to your wife every night. Your hair is like a flock of sheep. <laughs> The greatest love story in the Bible is the love story of Jesus for his church. Jesus is passionate about his church. We, you know that song, uh, I've, this was 169 in the Red Redemption hymnal. I found the pearl of greatest price. Do you know that one? My heart does sing for joy. My heart does sing. You don't know that one. I found the pearl. It's like I found Jesus. We think he's the pearl, but you know what he thinks? He thinks you're the pearl. You know the song we sing about um, the darling of heaven crucified? We think that Jesus is the darling of heaven. Do you know what Jesus thinks? 
He thinks you're the darling of heaven. You're his precious possession. He's passionate about you. And just as Isaac is sitting, you know, waiting, looking for the camels, I got my own little idea that this morning, Jesus said to the Father, it's today the day, Father, when I can go and get my bride. And I think the Father said, not yet, son, because today 140,000 people will give their lives to you. I'm waiting for the bride to get ready. But there's coming a day on that bright and cloudless morning when the dead in Christ shall rise and we'll see him. Don't you love a love story? And here is Isaac. You know, in all this difficulty, the camels are... That's hope. You've got to believe that your future is better than your past. You've got to believe that tomorrow is better than yesterday. You've got to believe that your destiny has prepared you for your, your... Sorry, your history has prepared you for your destiny. Hope fills your heart. Oh, but you don't know my difficulty. I've got some news for you. In your dryness, in your... Dis- God's moving there out as he's moving. It was um, six years ago that we launched church planting in Poland. It costs us today, uh, let me work this out, uh, $1,500 a month, every month, to plant two churches in Poland that we're doing at the moment. It was four years ago that we launched a school in Bolivia, and that costs us about $2,500 a month. So we've actually got to find four grand a month, every month, to plant churches and care for kids. Now, 4000 is not a lot of money if you say it really quick. And you forget the next month you need another 4000 So uh, it's a little bit of a challenge. And I have to say to myself, the camels are coming. Out of view, over the horizon, the camels are coming. Let me ask you a question. Who was the poorest family in Bethlehem when Jesus was born? Who couldn't afford a room in the inn? Oh, you know, it says the inn was full, but let me tell you that money will always buy a room. And it wasn't the stable, it was actually a cave. I mean, they were so poor. They were so poor that they could not afford a midwife to tend for this teenage girl giving birth to her first child. The Bible says that Mary wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in the manger. There was no attending midwife. There was no room. They were dirt poor. And now Joseph becomes aware that Herod's got plots against his son. He's, you know, the the son through, you know, not his, you understand. They've got to go to Egypt. Where's the money coming from, from the journey? How will they buy food? They're poor. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating this. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that he was rich and became poor. So here is Joseph, feeling the weight of responsibility of fatherhood. And there's a knock at the door. Who is it? It's the wise men. What do they bring? Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Fabulous gifts that will provide all their funds for however long they need for Egypt. Now, we know that the wise men rode camels. 
because all the Christmas cards always have camels, you know, that, and they could, they've got to be right. Herod said this to the wise men, how long, when did the star first appear? How long have you been following the star? Do, does anybody know how long it was? Two years. They had been coming for two years. The camels had been coming for two years. And they arrived at the right time. Let me encourage you. You might have been praying for two years. The camels are coming. (laughs) You might have been thinking about, what am I going to do? I don't know where to turn. The camels are coming. It's raining on the mountains. The whale's getting ready. Philip's leaving Samaria. And the kings are bringing all that you need. Ask me when I got this sermon. It happened uh, December last year. Ask me, I've got full notes, but I'm not reading it because I'm just sharing the deposit God God put in my heart. Last December, on a a Saturday morning, I am uh, uh, praying in my pastor's prayer time. And as I pray, this whole sermon comes to me. And I see in a moment of time, Isaac and Rebecca, the camels are coming. You know, Jehoshaphat, the rain on the mountain, Jonah, the whale, Philip, the sea, you know, the, I saw it all. And God said to me, Jeremy, the camels are coming. So I said to the guys, five or six of them who were praying with me, guys, the camels are coming. Yes, pastor. What on earth does that mean? This was about quarter to nine. At half past nine, I'm home having a cup of coffee when there is a knock on my door. I go to the door and here is an Aussie bloke. I can only describe him as an Aussie bloke. He's big. He's got a singlet on, stubby shorts. Do you know what I mean by stubby shorts? And thongs. And it's like, you know, he's an Aussie bloke. I hadn't seen that man for three or four years and he had never been to our church. And he said to me, I hear you've got a program in Bolivia. Can you tell me about it? So I invited him in and uh, I showed him some pictures about the 55 kids. This is what he said to me. Remember, it's costing us $2,500 a month. He said, I've got some gold, frankincense and myrrh. The camels are coming. And he put his big fist into these tiny stubby shorts and held it closed. He said, will this help? And he he started counting. One, two, three. These are bundles of $50 notes and there's $1,000 in each bundle. By the time he gets to five, I'm crying because the camels have arrived. $7,000 in cash on my dining room table. And I think that's going to change the lives of poverty-stricken kids in Bolivia. Then he said, tell me what you're doing in Poland. So I showed him some pictures of the churches we planted. He put his big hand into his short shorts and said, I've got some gold, frankincense and myrrh and put another three grand on the table. There's $10,000 
and, and we think, oh, my problem. If you love God, your problems are his problems. Your difficulties are his difficulties and nothing's too difficult for him. Your shortfall is actually met by his provision. And I want to declare over you, over your family, over your life, over your ministry, over this church, that the camels are coming, that God's got resources unseen, but they are on the way. Let me prophesy over this church that in 12 months' time, there will be people sitting in those seats that aren't here now, but God has drawn, whether they're saved or whether they are restored, but the camels are coming. Oh, Jeremy, you're just stirring us up. Yes, I am. Do you want me to fill you with doubt? Do you want me to dump some cynicism on you? Or do you want to be filled with the faith that's rising in your heart right now? Because it is hope. I'm not trapped. I haven't missed the boat. You know, I, I, God hasn't written me off. It's raining in Queensland and they're rejoicing in Adelaide. And over the hill, the camels are coming in your life. Let's pray together. I want you to stand to your feet. If, would you do that, please? And I want you to lift your hand to heaven. Father, without you, we are nothing. But with you, we have everything we need and more. You don't just feed us, Lord. There are baskets full left over. Our cup is not half full. It's full and running over. And Lord, I pray for every person that is here before you now. Lord, in their personal lives, in their marriages, in their homes, in their business, in their employment. And I speak over them that their future is better than their past. And I speak the word of the Lord over you that the camels are coming. Your camels are coming. That job is coming. That unsaved husband is coming. God's moving on his heart right now. Your backslidden son will return in the name of Jesus. We declare that every prophetic word that's been spoken in this building will come to pass not because we've made it but because God is God he honors his word and we speak over Bowen Christian family that the camels are coming in the name of Jesus in the name of Jesus fill our hearts with hope put your hand over your heart for a moment fill my heart with hope I refuse despair I refuse despondency I've been disappointed by people I face difficulties but I refuse that And I choose to receive your hope. Hope to you. Have hope in God. Oh, my soul, hope in God. Come on, speak to your own heart. Oh, my soul, have hope in God. Have hope in God. I will yet praise him in the name of Jesus. Now put your hand on the arm or the shoulder of somebody near you. And if that means you've got to walk across the aisle, good, do it. And I want you to say to each other, have hope in God. Have hope in God. Have hope in God. Have faith in God. Say that, have faith in God. Receive God's grace. Receive God's grace. Just pray for one another, just for a moment. Pray this prayer over the person you're touching. The healing power of Jesus is filling you now. The healing power of Jesus is filling you now. Father, I pray that in your grace, 
you will fill this room with your healing power. Healing bodies, hearts, minds, histories, lives, families. The healing power of Jesus is filling you now. Amen. Amen. Twice a year, our church has a uh, global prayer ministry. Please take your seats. It's called the 21 Days of Prayer. Uh, we've got about 60 churches around the world that pray for each other for 21 days. We would love Bowen to join us.